Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Nick Thoburn. Nick, hi, it's great to see you. It's been a long time, but we've just had a 17-minute gossip session about how important I am, (laughs) (laughs) which took a lot of expansion in order to get to 17 minutes. But anyway, (laughs) more importantly... Tell me what's on your mind these days, what you're thinking about, what's preoccupying you and so on. It, well, it's very, you know, at the moment we're um, two months into Israel's genocidal slaughter in Gaza. So that that's really very much on my mind at the moment, feeling rather overwhelmed by the cruelty and the uh, suffering. But also I have a strong sense of the necessity that we do something, you know, that we contribute as much as we can to Palestine solidarity actions, divestment campaigns, blockading of arms factories, as I was doing last week, um, to really push back against this vicious settler colonial apartheid uh, state. So that's very much, you know, emotionally and politically kind of taking over my mind at the moment um and also really a sense of outrage and shame that our universities may continue their complicity you know with israeli institutions universities these places that are developing the military and security technology that's killing palestinians but also you know as part of that killing our community something like 440 uh, members of the university community who have been killed by Israel, up, you know, and up to mid-November, you know, God knows how many since. Universities getting bombed to pieces. But I also have this strong feeling that that all the, you know, the illusions are really falling from people's eyes at the moment. There's a clarity to this moment, which I think we have to, which I think is will have an effect and we have to really grasp you know, as we move forward politically uh, and in terms of solidarity. You know, one of the things that occurred to me when this all kicked off was that in trying to understand why Hamas did what it did, part of me immediately turned to a sort of Leninist account in which this would be immiseration to create Mm. hell in Gaza that would finally turn influential international public opinion against Israeli colonialism, Mm. Uh, which is not to say that Hamas is responsible for what you've just outlined. It's just to say that, because I don't think they imagine it would be like this, but I wonder whether that was part of the calculation. I'm I'm sure you're right. And it it has broken that normalisation, hasn't it? When Netanyahu uh, just a few months ago was holding up that map of the region which showed Israel without any, you know, from the river to the sea, without any any indication of any Palestinian spaces at all. And the Gulf states were normalising in relations. Um, the uh, Israeli government thought it pretty much quashed Palestinian struggles completely. I think that's all gone now, hasn't it? You know, um, a lot of the a lot of the attempts to discredit and disqualify Palestinian solidarity are now seen for what they are, which are, you know, fake mobilizations of accusations of anti-racism and so forth, that people don't buy that anymore. It's really only the Western governments that seem to um, that seem to um, be on side with uh, 
you know the Israeli project now so I think this again you know it's an opportunity perhaps it's a horrific opportunity but it is perhaps an opportunity in terms of British complicity my mind goes back to the Vietnam War mm. when the Wilson government and the Heath government were patting themselves on the back for not having gotten involved perhaps having learnt their lesson with sewers and then the horrendous entanglements with decolonization but were, of course, in, complicit massively in terms of providing airspace and landing rights and all sorts of things to the US, as well as arms. And your reference to munitions factories in Britain today being part of this, I think, is very, very important. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like engaging in the action that you mentioned that you were involved in last week? Mm. Yes. So a group of trade unionists, sort of grassroots trade unionists called Workers for a Free Palestine recently, uh, who have been created during, you know, during this recent military assault. They organised a simultaneous blockade of four arms factories across the UK um, in Glasgow, Sussex, or Glasgow, Brighton, Dorset and um, uh, Lancashire. Um, And, you know, I went to the one in Dorset from London. That's for those who don't live in Britain. That's quite a way. Um, and we set off because Britain is a gigantic country. It's an enormous. And, and it is incredible the suffering people have to go through. <laughs> like when Newcastle fans have to go to London to watch football. So <laughs> this is a major, major commitment on your part. There we go. It's not that I'm sort of insular in my geographic uh, military. Um, so we met at four a.m. in central London headed off 10 of 10 coaches uh, to Dorset and the and then just blockaded three gates to this um, arms factory. Um, and it was amazing, actually, you know, the sense of kind of solidarity and camaraderie and sadness and anger that was really flowing, flowing through the crowd, even in the rain, you know, and the ingenu- ingenuity of the chants and the um, the banners and so on it felt really incredibly powerful i guess um uh with you know very much run you know organized and run by people of color but women very much at the at the lead um it really i'm not a great one for sort of generational analysis of politics but what very is absolutely clear from these uh from from that event and from other Palestine solidarity event is is really the prominence of young people, but also the full range of you know of the population and 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 a, a, a very powerful feeling of a of a community in struggle that is kind of inherently anti racist and you know not at all driven by the usual um, uh, characters you know in kind of activist scenes and so forth. And that's significant for a couple of reasons, at least. One is, as you say, that it's a refreshing change from the conventional notions that this is all either middle class or the white male proletariat. Mm. But also because in much of the debate about all kinds of elements of British imperial violence, arguments are made in the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the ruling class uh, daily paper, the the Daily Mail, the kind of lower middle class to middle class 
you know, paper of reaction. There are plenty others we could name. Some of the arguments they make are that working people will lose their jobs if Britain demilitarizes. Right? This was a thing they talked about endlessly when Jeremy Corbyn looked as though he might become prime minister. So the fact that these are working people who are protesting munitions factories is a very important thing too, I think, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it really, it shows the, it, it, it undermines that model of class that's been so dominant in, in, I guess, the popular imaginary, but also in laborism and in the academy to some extent that's, that, uh, takes a particular moment in 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 our case in my case in, in british history of you know kind of welfare status uh relatively secure uh dominated by male industrial employment understanding of class as a you know relatively coherent and relatively secure identity and then projects that backwards and forwards in time as the truth of class and the true class and so forth and so when you have you know um uh, young women of colour uh, blockading a, uh, an arms factory, somehow they're not working class. Uh, so the argument would go, the, the true working class are the ones that have been prevented from going from work. But of course, these uh, these women in this, in this case are as much working class as anyone going into the arms factory. There's no, there's no privilege that should be accorded to somebody just because they work in, a, in an arms factory rather than they hold some insecure job or they're students or, you know, whatever it is that they oh, do. Oh, quite so. And I mean, one of the problems of the union movement really in many parts of the world is the absolute failure to recognise shifts in the composition of the working class, mm. as in particular there are transformations from manufacturing to service industries mm. and not only the proletarianization of people but the fact that precarity becomes a norm as mm. opposed to as you say the sort of butskalism notion in britain bipartisan commitment to some sort of welfare state that applied after the war really until the 70s um, so yep. yes i think in what is this terrible terrible moment that is a very inspirational story, and I, I thank you very much for sharing it uh, with us, Nick, and applaud your efforts and those of your comrades. Is this one of these moments, as COVID-19 was for many people, when you are finding research hard to do, or is it stimulating you, or is it business as usual for you? Yeah, it's, it's not business as usual. I find it very difficult to um, focus on uh on work I, I and then also i find there are moments when i lose myself in work and almost feel i don't really like the word guilty but you know that somehow that why is this why am i not doing more and so forth um so this is strange kind of quite sort of fractured sense of my kind of emotional self i suppose at the moment i've been you know i continue i haven't been teaching i've been on research leave this semester but i continue uh, uh giving talks and and writing and so forth um and of course we you know struggles are complex and we also need to push our our political agendas and our research and our associations and our communications in different ways you know to different degrees of focus and intensity and so forth um 
yes so a, a little bit like covid in that sense but for you know obviously for different different reasons, reasons. listeners may be aware that the Spanish election was, shall we say, inconclusive. And so there was a long period here of negotiation between quasi-separatist regionalist governments and the Socialist Party in order to form a government, which eventually happened, as I'm sure you're aware, but some listeners may not be. And that led to mass protests in the streets against what was seen as an improper, even unconstitutional deal. These mass protests occurred in the same places and on the same days as mass protests in support of Gaza. Uh So there was one day when I went along to, in a way, observe both and participate in one. (laughs) And there were 250,000 people protesting against the constitutional deal that the government had struck with a right-wing Catalan group. And maybe seventy to 100,000 protesting for Palestine. And some people were in both groups, which is amazing. So you would see people with flags, one, the Palestinian flag, the other, a Spanish flag, which now means ruling class quasi-fascist in this country. And this, is, this was not something held together by anti-Semitism for example, or anti-Judaism, whatever we might call those things. It is to say that some of the the incredible complexity of these issues can cross borders in very, very difficult ways. Mm. And to its credit, the socialist government, which, as you know, is not socialist at all. It's basically Biden and Starmer at best, is good on this issue, comparatively good. Uh, And because Spain is chair of the EU at the moment, there is some rationality emerging in that quarter. But it is a it's a difficult moment. And these mobilizations are quite striking because nearly all the people, there are a lot of rich people in Spain who go on these huge constitutional marches are not only far right, but absolutely ruling class. And lots of young people. And it is a traditional ruling class. It's an oligarchy, but it's big. The people who go on the Palestinian march are some of those ruling class people, but by and large, working class and immigrant. Very much. Very much. Because, of course, as you know, Spain still has two colonial possessions in North Africa, two cities that are part of Spain. And Mm. so you get a lot of people from North Africa, many of them Muslims, who live here, who work here. And that constellation has made this a fascinating time here. I say fascinating in a slightly ghoulish sense, I suppose, but just to see this strange conjuncture of two mass movements that would be considered utterly distinct in an Anglo context, but have some bizarre overlap. It's sort of demonstrations as Venn diagram. It's a spatial Venn diagram. Actually, yes. And seeing people walk around with one of the flags over one shoulder and the other over the further <laughs> shoulder is really something. <laughs> so getting back to your work, tell yeah. us about recent 
publications that people might be interested in. I think you have a particularly important new one that you might want to address. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's um, it's interesting. We we're talking about class step because I I so my I published a book with Goldsmiths Press late last year called uh, Brutalism as Found, and the subtitle is Housing Form and Crisis at Robin Hood Gardens. Um, and Robin Hood Gardens is a council estate or a public housing estate in East London that's been very much at the centre of a of um, a kind of cultural tussle about its merits or its failures as a piece of architecture, as a piece of housing. Um, but also it's it's a key instance and an illustration of the crisis of social housing in this country as 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 elsewhere um and really what we and so I, I my book is really an attempt to try and engage the estate as uh as a social space you know as a piece of living architecture as a work of architecture work of brutalism and as a a, a nexus for understanding the housing crisis and the forces that are sort of tearing up um social housing so i i call it a socio-architectural critique trying to you know bring those two sides together um and it was a it it comes from a collaborative project with a photographer Koyas Mir and research assistants from uh, Runa Kalik and Aklima Begum and we interviewed some 38 uh, residents photographed residents in their homes in in sort of portrait photography full color you know quite deliberately different to the way that brutalism is normally approached in high contrast monochrome and coffee table books and so forth um and we really wanted to foreground residents experiences of the estate because it the the narrative is the dominant narrative in the press and the media by government is that working class residents hate their council homes which particularly if they're brutalist or you know approximately brutalist in style they're called concrete monstrosities and sink estates and everybody's desperate to flee and and move into their completely sort of normalized kind of bourgeois ideal of what proper housing should be um and so those who favored its demolition kept um would ventriloquize residents to say how much it was hated and we knew this wasn't the case uh we had friends there who who loved living there you know we had this sense that it wasn't the case um so we wanted to really try and find out what the experience of the estate was like there's an irony there nick in that <laughs> when these sorts of estates were built the arguments you've just listed were exactly the same we will produce this utopian modernist housing that will mm. displace the horrific slums that people were in, or in the case of Britain, what happened in the Blitz. Uh, in the case of the university where I work, it's hundreds of years old, but it's not Oxbridge because the fascists bombed it to bits during the Civil War. And so the building that I work in is brutalist um, to the core. It's it's Barbican without the... Uh, the frippery and um, I'm personally not a fan of brutalism but I've never lived in brutalism right and there is a brutalist housing estate round the corner from me and the people who live there absolutely love it mm. 
And the people I know who live in the Barbican like it. Now, the Barbican is not exactly a housing estate, but you know what I mean. Mm. There's something pernicious about this tendency of urban planners and developers to denounce the present in the name of utopian future mm. without ever considering that they're using the same dystopic language to deride what is currently the case that their forebears and even possibly they themselves used decades earlier. Yeah, no, that's very well put, Toby. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. I think that the, the intriguingly with brutalism in this country and I think elsewhere is oops, there are two things going on. One of them is what we've been talking about, the stigmatization toward demolition and then, you know, housing investment and speculative investment and so forth. Um, because, of course, the point isn't to demolish them to make better housing. The point is to demolish them in order to make more value, more money from the site, um, which in turn creates the housing crisis. It doesn't address it. It creates it um, because it pushes up rents and land values and, and moves out working class you know, uh, residents and so forth. The other thing that's going on with brutalism is this um, boom in its in interest over the last decade or so is as it's become you know extremely fashionable mm-hmm. again um and so one of the things that uh, one of the points of focus of my book is what exactly is going on with that um uh, return of interest in brutalism um and what i argue well i so brutalism is a to sort of go back a little bit, brutalism is a, a term that was coined by Alison and Peter Smithson in the 50s, who are the architects of Robin Hood Gardens. So, you know, and it's their only mass housing scheme. So it's very important in terms of understanding uh, what brutalism is and understanding what that this, you know, architectural firm was. Um, and they make a, a very clear point that is tended to be obscured in the reception of the movement that Brutalism is two things. One of them is a fascination with materials. So materials should should be uh, should be encouraged or enabled to to be expressive, to be celebrated in all their kind of morphological capacities, their sensory qualities, and so forth. Um, that's not so unusual for modernists. I mean, brutalists, if you like, push that modernist tendency of the truth to materials to its extreme, and they stop covering it in white stucco and instead have raw concrete and so forth. Um, now, that's all very well known, but the trouble is it's become the only way that brutalism is understood. So half of the, you know, half of what brutalism is has become the whole and in the process has damaged what the whole is and has turned brutalism into, I argue, a, a kind of reactionary middle-class cultural form because for the Smithsons, the other half was its social dimension. And they make it very clear. They say um, brutalism faces up to a mass production society and tries to do something with it. You know, it creates form from social relations. um, And they call that the ethical dimension of brutalism. So they say, you know, brutalism until now has been understood aesthetically, but actually it is an ethical or a social uh, uh, movement. And so in this book, I've been trying to draw out that social dimension um, not at the expense of the material, but to understand how the social courses through the forms of brutalism um, and to understand how, how brutalism and Robin Hood Gardens um, grapples with social relations in order to produce, you know, innovative, experimental, political built form. Whereas the other thing that's going on 
well, or rather the dominant thing that's going on, if it's not being stigmatized, is it's being celebrated. Um, I call it beautiful brutalism. Mm. Um, you know, in in there's a there's a book called the the raw concrete the beauty of brutalism that with penguin that did very well um there were these coffee table books and 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 so forth um and what the point i try and make is that this rise over the last decade or so of beautiful brutalism is really uh indexed to the move of middle class homeowners into ex-council properties you know these properties that have been sold or they were right to buy properties that were sold to tenants and now those tenants have sold them on into the private market. And just um, if you could, sorry, if I could in, in, interrupt mm. for a minute, could you explain to people the so-called Thatcherite dream mm. of the transformation of perennial social housing renting into, you know, working people becoming homeowners that, that is that scheme? Yeah, so it's, it's one of Margaret Thatcher's most sort of socially violent policies and and for a period was perhaps her most popular um, and this was a policy she brought in in 1980, which was the mass sale of public housing or council housing to existent tenants at extremely reduced prices. Um, and so the idea was, or at least the rhetoric was this would create a, quote, property owning democracy. And of course, um, relatively secure working class uh, householders who could afford even at reduced price, of course, it still costs money. So who could afford to buy their own homes did very well. But the crime, if you like, is that she refused to allow councils to reinvest that money to build more housing. And so it was a way of diminishing the public housing stock massively um, and not replacing it. So the replacement becomes private build, except, of course, private build costs so much more money to rent or private homes cost so much more money to to rent and so it created an ever declining quality in in rental housing and an ever increasing cost to rental housing to create to large in large measure the housing crisis that we have today and what's happened more recently is that those homes were purchased and then have been sold on and so now something like 40 percent of um those right to buy homes are now rented again in the private sector. So they're for their council homes that are now rented in the private sector. So they're now private homes at hugely increased rents. I think it's 2.3 times council rents on average and at much worse quality and with much less security. Um, so we haven't created a property owning democracy far from it. We've just shifted from public rent into private rent with all the declining quality that that's entailed. But because of the ballooning property prices, you know, traditional middle class housing stock is now out of reach for much of the middle class. So they have started moving into council estates or ex-council estates, which are sold on. And they're very, very anxious about their declining social mobility. And they're frightened of council estates. You know, we've our country has spent decades trying to terrify the populace about the violence of the council estate and the violence of the working class and so forth. So uh, the argument I make is that this revival of interest in brutalism has been a way to kind of cleanse these estates of their working class associations, re-culturally revalorize them, or sometimes to repurpose the working class associations into ways that are more palatable, um, uh, in, or, in order to ease this 
this transition of middle class homeowners from Victorian terraces into ex council estates. I'm thinking of some parts of North London where you can find gigantic estates that were built in the 20s and 30s for young single women moving to London for work reasons and now have BMWs in the driveways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, brutalism is, well, the revival of interest in brutalism has helped them do that. I mean, it, just as a quick illustration, this guy, this book, Raw Concrete, it's called, on the very first, which is a beautiful, you know, celebration of the materiality of of uh, of brutalism um on the very first page it 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 says you might there's something along the lines of you 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 know you dear reader um might imagine brutalism to be associated with the horror of the council estate that you know this sort of and um really i'm here or this book's here to sort of cleanse that impression from your mind it doesn't say it quite so explicitly as that and there's quite a lot of self-deprecation but that's the effect of, of these of these books Wow. And during the course of the photography, the 38 folks interviewed, the participant observation, the archival research, I imagine, that was part of this, what surprised you? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, well, we certainly, so the focus on residents experiences of the architecture it didn't surprise me um that it didn't surprise me that they enjoyed the spaces because they really are quite experimental i'll I'll say a bit more about that in a minute but um i i was really struck by how much insight they had about let's say architectural form or space you know or or what it is to experience a space you know um I, I let's i wasn't surprised but um it was it was heartening or good or or rewarding to hear those interpretations um you know because we live in we live in a uh, well the, the common notion really is so often that somehow architects understand space and they create space and then people merely live in them you know, and they don't really understand them and they don't, you know, architecture something more rarefied um, uh, a set of understandings and, and, and so forth. And that, you know, that wasn't at all what we found. Um, people have much to say about these kind of spaces. So everyday theorising about architecture. Yeah, exactly that. Very present. Yeah, exactly that. You know, when when approached via the experience of, of yeah. space, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in also in sort of amusing ways so um concrete in its council house articulation is has been so denigrated you know it's like the phrase concrete monstrosity just rolls off your tongue almost instantly um um john grindrod says something like it rolls off your tongue in the same way that that um that uh um uh political correctness gone mad you know all these phrases that you know that we can't help appraise. So if you ask people in on the estate about concrete, they're not likely to immediately sing the praises of, you know, it's of its sensory qualities, but they would almost always say concrete's great because it's strong <laughs> and it's, it's, it's noise dampening effects. You know, it meant that the, the flats were really kind of well insulated um, in terms of sound and so forth. That's a, that's a great, uh, a wonderful thing to hear, because in an ethnomethodological sense, 
theory is everywhere and people are constantly constructing the world in which they live. Mm. The difference of, is that the kind of theory that sometimes people like us write about or talk about is extremely explicit and nominated as such. Yeah. But it's no more theoretical and no more empirical than the work of the everyday. Yeah. I Well, so I, I tell me I'm quite proud of in the book, or at least this was certainly the aim, um, and I hope I've achieved it to some extent, is to really bring these different sort of modes of theorizing and research together. So, you know, I, I use quite a lot of Deleuze's understanding of form and the and the intellectual interrogation of a problem, um, uh, our brute work on the materiality of or the expressive qualities of matter, and residents much of residents's residents' own interpretations of of these spaces and their homes. Um, so when I said that the, I, with the book, I tried to have the estate express itself. It's like a it's like an expression of the materials, the people, the the activities, the theory, the architects, you know, all kind of coming in there in a sort of awkward mesh, all coming into expression. Not really wanting to see one approach would be to say, look, these are really people's homes. So let's sort of park the architectural criticism and just give their their expression. I didn't want to do that. I wanted it all to come in, you know, together. Um, um, to, for the architecture to also speak, but not in, but to speak critically, and not in the ways that brutalism normally is understood. To know, if if you think back to the days of community studies in British sociology, which I, mm. I imagine doesn't really exist anymore, in fairly conservative ways, but not conservative with a capital C, there were tendencies to celebrate traditional working class culture mm. in often very difficult housing conditions as a sort of a triumphant expression of the will, but never talking really about inequality and never talking about where they lived as something that was more than an expression of their self-pride in the face of difficult circumstances. Mm. There was never any discourse of rights in that sort of work, as I, when I read it anyway. As I say, I think it might have died um, a natural death. Mm. But there is a strong tendency to romanticise the experience of the underprivileged mm. that is there in UK sociology and with lots of good reasons. But I think allowing the space not just to be the incarnation of the experience of its residents, but for that experience itself also to speak is a fantastic contribution. Mm, really, thank you. really great. I, I, I'd like to, you know, talk more about what you were saying there about the romanticization of, of class, because I think that th there's certainly a risk that I do that, but I'm also it's something I'm trying very consciously to push against in that, when I said there's this sort of tendency to turn brutalism into an aesthetic form, brutal, uh, beautiful brutalism, the other dominant tendency is the one to romanticise the welfare state period and to see brutalism as an articulation in concrete of the welfare state. Um, and that, going back to what we were talking about early on, that relies on a, a, this incorrect and, and sort of false 
image of what class is. So we, once upon a time, we had coherent working class communities who were well housed in the beautiful British welfare state. And then along came neoliberalism and destroyed that. And I, the right wing version is it destroyed that. And now class is anachronistic because it only existed then. It doesn't exist now. And anyone who carries on understanding or looking like they're working class should somehow go back to the past. Um, or the, there's a kind of romantic dream that that model of class might be revived again. You know, nasty neoliberalism we pushed aside and we will return to the Keynesian utopia. Um, whereas the case I, the case I make in, in, in the book is that well, first of all, that although that idea of class as a relatively coherent identity was partially true for a proportion of the white British working class during that period, that's not what class is. You know, cl- the working class is a condition of being pulled apart by social relations, never having had a clear identity, coherent identity, security, and that when a proportion of the working class does get that security, it's absolutely incorrect to identify that as the truth of class. And of course, it was dependent on imperialism and and you know, resource extraction and plunder and uh, debt economies and so forth um, in the global south. And so that Robin Hood Gardens, interestingly, was completed more or less at the moment when that model of class went into terminal collapse. So it's finished in 72. You know, the the, um, the oil crisis is is around the corner. Margaret Thatcher's around the corner. And so people often refer to it as an anachronistic estate. Rather than being built at the heart of the welfare state, it was built at the end. Um, when class, rather than it being built when class was a coherent identity, it's built when the working class has been really pulled apart by what becomes precarity and so forth. Um, but actually, I think I try and read it the other way around. I think what Robin Hood Gardens does is express class as non-identity or class as crisis in built form. Um, and so it's not anachronistic. It's actually really, a, it's really very much of our time. Um, and that it does that by not because of its beautiful concrete or all of these kinds of things. It does that by um, by articulating social relations in forms. And I argue that it, it, it the, the estate is a composite of four forms. Um, it's not a coherent whole. It's a collection of four forms. The whole changes depending on the relation between the different forms at any one time as you live it, as you experience it. And each of these forms addresses, grapples with, and tries to reshape a problem in class society. The problem of home, the problem of the street, the problem of mass production, and the problem of landscape. Um, so the famous one is the street, and Robin Hood Gardens um, had these, what, what the Smithsons called streets in the sky. Um, they created that concept, and then it became you know used in other sites um and their claim i think very very obviously true was that the working class street was being destroyed by the car you know sit working class inner cities were becoming thoroughfares um the pollution the noise the inability to 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 use the street as a kind of social spatial space was becoming very clear and so their their they grapple with that problem by elevating the street up in the air, um, not to kind of not to retain the street in its previous form, not to sort of create a kind of cliched 
idea of the working class street, but to create a new kind of street elevated up in the air with, you know, in the expanse of open space, with all the views, with the rush of the elements um, and so forth. Um, so the problem in class society is addressed, grappled with through a new kind of form, but not a form that magically solves all of, doesn't solve social crisis. It's not a utopia. It's a grappling with an attempt to create something new that is also fraught and insecure and, and so forth. Something about this concept of class, I, I would like you to expand on if you could. I'm thinking about the way in which E.P. Thompson is often invoked as a, an important figure in British cultural studies and the new left, as indeed he was in the anti-nuclear proliferation movement. But I guess in the making of the English working class, whatever it was called, he is trying to allow for this as a process rather than a static category. Yeah? And it sounds as though there's something in common with your perspective there. Have I got that right or no? Yeah, I that's a that's interesting. So um I think we're all influenced by that book in in different ways, you know. Uh I think the attention to cultural forms mediated through and mediating social relations of capital uh, and and drawing in questions of resistance and so forth into that is obviously vital. Um, but uh, I think, and I'm no doubt, you know, not just influenced, but also repeating some of that. Um, but I, my understanding of class comes from a different Marxist trajectory, um, which, which is there in Marx, I think, quite clearly at certain points. And then appears in, you know, more recently in communization theory, um, in a little bit into autonomia and Mario Tronti and people like that. And that is the notion that class, the working class must fight against itself insofar as it, it is capital or that's Tronti or put another way, the working class is only the condition of being pulled apart by capitalist social relations. It's not an identity. It's not a culture. It's not a continuity. It's not an emerging subject that will kind of expand in its size and then transpose that subjectivity in place of the bourgeoisie or something. It is, it is just the condition of crisis. And so then the question is, well, what does one, what does a class or a society or an art form or a piece of architecture or a work of literature, or whatever it might be, what does it do with that condition of crisis? And how does it hold that condition of crisis in its expressions, in its forms, in its ways of life? Um, GM Tamás, the Hungarian Marxist who died last year or earlier this year, um, has a nice essay on this where he he says there are two tendencies in Marxism, the angelic around the problem of class, the angelic and the demonic. And we're all drawn by the angelic. And Thompson is the prime example of that. And it's a kind of Rousseauian understanding of class. But the truly Marxist understanding of class is demonic. And that's that this is, you know, capital produces a horror. You know, it tears everything apart. Yeah, and that's yeah. the basis from which we have to formulate, you know, uh, class processes, class politics. I, so. I've been thinking about something similar with reference to some of the rhetoric about the Windrush generation. Okay. Those not familiar with it. This is about a, a ship named the Windrush that came into Britain in 48 with several hundred uh, African-descended Caribbean people aboard. 
who were mistreated systematically and continue to be by the British government and people. One of the arguments in favour of trying to fix up some people's migratory status and take care of them in health terms is that these are the people who rebuilt Britain after the war. And that is... Good people. Yeah, they're good people. But I love the idea. There are 400 black men who essentially rebuild Britain after the Blitz and rebuild Coventry. and you know, they, they get off the boat and that's what they do. But that sort of ironization aside, there's something interesting there in saying that a group that was never recognized as being working class was never recognized as being British never even really recognised as being resident, certainly not as having conventional citizen rights, that that could represent the working class as mm. having reconstructed Britain after the war, shows how flexible, commutable and tough to hold on to any notion of class could ever be. Mm. Because they're not the people that you read about in British sociology of class structure of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or today. Mm. But this notion of their standing synecdically for the working class as the heroic rebuilders of society is a way of legitimizing them today. Do you see what I'm getting at? That the, in other words, the standard definitions and norms and ways of understanding things are brushed aside once they're put at the center of the discourse. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so it, it particularly in, in the kind of in, in a sort of liberal discourse, it's it's that that sort of reach for classes completely integrated in the national compact. You know, Robbie Shilliam talks about it, the national compact of business, labor, capital, where class is is through that period is respectable, hardworking, industrious, patriarchal uh and, and and so forth to use the, and of course that is utterly racialized it was always premised on excluding um uh non in, in britain excluding kind of non-british people in the colonies excluding black populations at home and so to then see that model of class being deployed in order to um respectabilize if we can say that the windrush generation is deeply problematic at the same time you can see the logic can't you like why people are trying to do that because that's the only way that class is ever legitimized as a position i i mean i guess the contrast between the liberals doing that let's say the pro windrush liberals if we can say that is is a book like you know stuart hallitale's policing the crisis or you know the race today collective in the 70s where they're saying no the the black working class is not respectable you know um it's resistant it's rebellious it's uh and uh, but we live in times where it's quite hard to do that i think in the same way or at least you can't imagine the guardian doing that you know when it's <laughs> the problem of windrush when um, was the g word going to emerge into this yeah. conversation the g word the g spot has finally expressed yeah, itself. right yeah. we kept it we kept the grawny ad at one i'm very sorry that i was the one to bring the g word <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
yes. There's a wonderful expression that Des Friedman uses in the introduction to his collection about the G word. Okay. Uh, where he says the the problem with the analysis of in the Grauniad is that it points correctly to all the awful forms of inequality that exist without ever acknowledging that it supports and is part of yes. institutions that deliver those crises. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and never yeah. questions them. Well, when, when, when you talk about respectability, I was thinking about the way in which the black working class in the United States is recuperated to being respectable in terms of church going, mm. dressing up on a Sunday, having mm. a sense of pride. I mean, all these comfortable descriptions of working class passivity that uh, white liberals want to see. Mm. No? Yeah, no, I, I think. Versus, I think of, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of Chester Himes' books. No. So he was an African-American noir fiction writer. The books are really terrific. Okay. And they involve a couple of black detectives, urban detectives in the police force who solve crimes, you know, and they're good guys. In the very last novel, they just go around killing white people. Mm. They've lost it. Mm. They've ceased to be what you're meant to be. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, well, I've, I'm, I, over the last sort of little while, I've been completely taken by um, Frank B. Wilderson's um, Afro pessimist or Afro pessimism, um, and that sounds very much like a a, a Wilderson sort of narrative. You know, um, he talks about he talks about um, I've forgotten the title of a film. I think Sidney Poitier's in it, where it's uh, there's a I'll have this wrong, but you know, in terms of the story, there's a, a black and white. Um, um, they're either friends or they become friends. They might be enemies at the start and become friends or what have you. But there's a scene at the end of the film where the the black protagonist is leaning out of the train, trying to grab the hand of the white guy that's running along the, the, the platform or the track to be pulled onto the train. So does the black guy save the white guy at that moment? And if he doesn't save him, then it's it's curtains for him. And of course the black guy does save the white guy because there has to be redemption in a Hollywood narrative. But Wilderson talks about watching this film in a black, in a cinema with a black audience and the black audience were all saying, leave him, leave him, <laughs> let him die. You know, the sense in which resolution is so important to white, to the white psyche and white social structures, but it's, it's so, um, uh, race doesn't work like that or anti-blackness doesn't work like that or rather anti-blackness works by producing that resolution but black politics doesn't produce that resolution or it shouldn't now nick we've got about 10 minutes left i've got a couple of questions i'd like to put to you and then i'd like you to take the opportunity should you wish to add anything that we've not touched on or we wish to adumbrate uh, additional points do you know what i mean Mm, mm. Sound okay? Yeah, great. So first question is, if you take a through line across your career, what do you see as the continuities and discontinuities in your publishing? Mm. So I, I, 
I now sort of work in three areas, you know, in, in political publishing or experimental political publishing, in uh, uh, housing architecture and in social and political theory. And my first book was on Deleuze and Marx um, uh, and, you know, a book about brutalism and Robin Hood Gardens would seem to be very different uh, to that. But actually, for me, the some of that central problematization of class and politics and form actually um, runs through all of the books. Uh, I've been very interested in how we, in the first book, in how we can think about political composition as a kind of form, you know, a sort of form that bears contradiction within itself as against forms of identity, which I take from Deleuze and Marx. And that's true in the, in my book on brutalism too. Um, I, Working on publishing was also very much a question of form. I, you know, I was interested in how publish, political publishing, self-publishing, experimental publishing can express can express communist forms. You know, through not so that publishing becomes not just a question of the transmission of content and ideas. It becomes not just a means of organizing, but it also becomes a means of of generating creating social relations social forms material structures that bear something of its own critique that bear something of communist and political positions so that's that's been a continuity um i'm not sure there are any great differences other than you know a chain significant changes in what i've been focusing on but i'm also i'm starting to put together going back to the beginning i'm starting to put together uh, what I'm calling a fabulation of Deleuze's missing book on Marx. Um, so he, when he died, he he shortly before he died, he said he was writing a book called The Grandeur of Marx. Um, and so it's gone down in kind of Deleuze mythology as this sort of missing work. Was any of it written? Are there any notes? Was there a plan? Uh, and so forth. And um, I decided it would be fun to imagine the book so whereas my first book was a reading of the Marx that inheres through what Deleuze did publish, this is the plan here is to think about what he would have been writing about on Marx at the end of his life in the context of someone who is very attentive to what a late or a final book would be. He writes really beautifully about the, the idea of a final work. You know, when all the parts of the machine come together, he says, you know, when Turner turns to this wild abstraction in his very last works and so forth. Um, so I'm quite interested in what would be the wild Deleuze book, you know, in his last years. So, so this uh, isn't finding lost tapes of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> it's inventing the lost tapes of Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> fabulating the lost tapes of Jimi, of Jimi yeah. Hendrix. Right. So do you feel, when you're contemplating this project, do you feel Gilles-like? Uh, I, I like to, yes, of course. I mean, I'm a complete fanboy, so um, I, I, li I like to feel that um, I, uh, I touch, you know, there's a sense of the quality somehow of, of the character. I mean, Deleuze obviously is, you know, radically kind of, anti-subjective as a philosopher but he also had a very profound sense of um character and quality and style and i think you have to try and as much as you can get close to somebody's style and quality uh, right about I, it i think he was not very taken with gatari's lifestyle yeah <laughs> well i think he sort of admired it but it wasn't at all he it says wasn't for him. 
No, he says Guattari was like an ocean sparkling all over the place. I'm more like a hill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. He says I don't move very much. You know, more like a hill. Um, it's rather sweet. Hated travel. Thought food was kind of disgusting. <laughs> Didn't like cheese. Um, this kind of these strange sort of very uncosmopolitan kind of qualities. Um, <laughs> So my next question, my last one before I throw it to you for things you may wish to describe or discuss, is about being a sociologist mm. and what that means to you today. Mm. I, I think sociology has become more exciting. So I, I, I got my PhD in 2000, so you know I started as a PhD researcher in the mid 90s and my feeling is that sociology has become more exciting during that period over this time um I think the younger the youngest perhaps generation of academics today really political you know anti-racism decolonial thought has it's really right there not just in their rhetoric I think but but also in their sense of politics and action and thinking and that body of thought has has or always was but really has come forward now as really inventive critical you know thinking so i love that that that's that's made a big difference to my sense of what the discipline is um uh i used to feel more of an outsider in in sociology you know much more much more trained in a kind of cultural studies tradition and in a sort of philosophical tradition. I feel less of an outsider now. I mean, that might be a function of age and security too. Um, I do. One of the things I really love about sociology, at least in Britain, and I don't know it's the same elsewhere, but at least in Britain is that there really is a freedom to, to sort of plow your own course, to, to, to bring all sorts of fringe areas into disciplinary space mm. to teach uh with a quite a strong degree of uh, freedom unlike some disciplines which i think have a much stronger sense of what their canon is and what is legitimate and so forth so i value that you know a great deal and i enjoy sociologists actually I, you know as as colleagues um i think i'm kind of lucky in manchester i know um, you know maybe i feel differently if i was elsewhere um, I certainly found that to be true in Goldsmiths too, where, which is why I did my PhD. That's very positive. That's nice to hear. Really nice to hear. So many people are so dissatisfied with their disciplines. Mm. And but if they're not, then they're too smug about how important those disciplines are, which takes the form often of a legitimation that's to do with having a logic that runs through them, mm. a set of methods, rather than being pluriversal, which is very much what I take your work to be. So I wonder if there are things you'd like to add as our coda, Nick. I, no, I don't think so. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Toby. Thanks so much for having me. Um... Well, thank you. It was great. And it, it's, I mean, I can't help but remember as a child, when the Barbican was being built and going into it. Mm. And uh, for those who don't know, this was built in a part of London that was very affected by the Blitz. Everything had been blown up, basically. And it was utopian, wasn't it? 
It was the sort of flagship of this stuff. And being told this is the future, this is how everybody will live. I can still remember that as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. Because mm -hmm. it started in 64, I think. It, it, I think it took, it wasn't until the, it, I think it's the early 80s when it was finally it, it, finished. It, it took decades. So it had been, and I remember, so I would have been 11 or 12, would have been 1969 and saying, if it's so wonderful, why is there almost nothing here after five years? But of course, this was not correct architectural critique. <laughs> no, not at all. It's well, of course, it was the Barbican was the middle class utopia. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it was built in order because the city was essentially a rotten. The city of London was essentially a rotten borough. It didn't have enough people living in it to justify its sort of tax status or, or or local authority status or what have you. So they had to have people there. Um, but it was built for you know, it's, it's it was built for bankers and yeah. Uh, it's, so it's got you know, it has a museum and, and a symphony orchestra. Yeah, so. Yeah, and Whereas the most working class estates used to have a pub. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, this yeah the estate pub versus the estate theatre. There's the <laughs> contrast, isn't it? Um, it? But it is. I mean, I my trips to the Barbican, I always greatly enjoy it. Um, but it's also illustrative of this, you know, that the Barbican will be celebrated as its beautiful brutalism while Robinhood Gardens will be destroyed as a concrete monstrosity. You know, yes. these are the two ways that brutalism is kind of understood. Um, Absolutely. To, one thing I wanted to add was that we, my my colleague Koya Smear and I have a web exhibition of, it's if you like, it's the visual aspects of of, of our project brought forward, but with captions from, um, from my book. And that's at... Um, the, 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 that's a brutalism as found anyone searching that would find the website i'd encourage people to see his really beautiful uh images brutalism as found.co.uk yeah so www.brutalismasfound.co.uk yeah streets in the sky uh that's one of the pages within one it, of the yeah. pages okay so i will add that to the description of our incredibly important conversation uh, which should make it easy for people to find. And Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure. We've been friends for a long time, yeah. but I've not seen you for a long time. No. And I've appreciated your warmth and your generosity, both in our private chat before recording and during this recorded conversation. And I just want to extract one promise slash premise from you that you will return to the pod, maybe wearing a Deleuzean hoodie, <laughs> that's the way i'll grow my nails for the occasion right. very good yeah the kind of howard hughes inca right. reincarnation excellent all right so uh i will cease recording now there we go